Okay, as a reminder, we're in the midst of a series of messages that are designed to address the question, what does the future hold? For many, it's a question that uh, generates fear in their hearts as they consider all of the possibilities. The, for the Christian, however, it should be a question that prompts us to dig into the Word of God to find out what God has to say about future events. And as we dig in, we also will find that God is in control of all things, and there'll be much comfort in that. Also an important fact that we need to consider as we look at future events is that God wants us to prepare for those events, and oftentimes that we look at these things and we consider their, the possibilities and what's ahead, but uh, very rarely do we consider what it means to prepare for the events that will take place. And so this particular session, as we look at it, there'll be much, um, I, I think, much emphasis on the preparation part. As, uh, as we can consider the future, we're told by God, or better yet, warned by God, to be aware of what he calls religious apostasy. That as the day of Jesus' return draws near, religious apostasy will be at an unprecedented level in human history. And the question that you have to ask yourself, and we've been defining as we've been going through it, is what is apostasy? And the Bible defines apostasy simply as a departure or a falling away. It's a departure or falling away from the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And uh, when we read in 1 Thessalonians that the tribulation cannot come. By the way, there's been some questions and I'll, I'll, I'll reemphasize it at the end. But um, next week we're going to take a look at the question, what is the tribulation? I know some question about, you know, with the missions conference and stuff, what's going on. But uh, next week, we, we will be here to discuss what is the tribulation. The main services will have mission speakers. Then the following week, we'll have a missionary speaker. So that's just to kind of give you an update on what we're going to do. But um, as we read in 1 Thessalonians, the tribulation cannot come until, quote, the apostasy or the departure takes place. And uh, that has to come first. And the context of the, of the uh, passage indicates or refers to a great religious apostasy or falling away that will precede the coming of the Antichrist or the coming world leader. And so God has much to say about religious apostasy. And the Bible gives us very specific um, instructions as to what to anticipate. We've been going through this, and uh, we're going to wrap it up today, but the first thing that we saw is that the development of religious apostasy. We noticed that basically God has said from the very beginning... Uh, that lies have been introduced into church history. From the very beginning, when we read the book of Galatians, for example, Paul warned the church at Galatia that there was a false gospel that was already being preached. There were false teachers that were already among them. They were trying to dilute the truth and the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so from the very beginning, there has been an attempt to invade the Christian faith with that which God says are wrong, errors, or false. And so from the beginning of time, or from the beginning of the time of the church, we have had to deal with the reality that there would be false information that would be presented. Now, as the church has progressed, or as time has progressed, we notice that there has been an unprecedented level of uh, apostasy, or falling away, or departure from the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And God warns us, as the day of Jesus' return draws near, that it will be at an all-time unprecedented uh, level. As we've gone through it, we've noticed a description that God gives us. The Bible is very clear. We see the description of religious apostasy or some of the things that we can use to identify the falling away from the Christian faith. The first thing that Jesus warned was there would be many who would come in his name. There would be many messiahs, so to speak. There were many that were in the world. Even as Jesus was in the world and he walked the face of the earth, there were those who claimed to be the Savior. And Jesus warns us that, that many will come who claim to be the Savior. Many will come, come and say, hey, follow me and I'll lead you into all truth. Follow me and I'll lead you to the way. Or follow me and I'll lead you to the path that leads to heaven. And there will be many messiahs or saviors who would come into the world and preach to us that they know the way. 
What's fascinating about that is, is Jesus was very clear. There is no other way but through him. That he was the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes in the Father but through me. So if there's any indication by these people who come and say, hey, I know the way to God, but they deny the deity of Jesus Christ, and they deny that he is the only way that man can be reconciled to God, then God says immediately we recognize him as a false teacher who's making false claims. The second thing what we're warned of is miraculous signs. We'll talk about that again in a second. Doctrinal heresy. Some of the first heresies that were introduced to the early church were the heresy of denying the deity of Jesus Christ. We see that today in the world that we live in. When you ask people, well, who do you think that Jesus is? Or who do you say that Jesus is? The same question that Jesus asked Peter. Who do people say that I am? The first thing that they said was, hey, you're a prophet. Uh, you're Elijah. You're John the Baptist. Uh, you're a good man. You're a good teacher. You're a great philosopher. Um, you are all these things. And Jesus said, no, who do you say that I am? In the world that we live in that comes through and wants to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They want to deny that Jesus Christ is God, and they want to deny that he's come in human flesh. That was one of the first doctrinal heresies that was introduced to the early church, that Jesus Christ was not God in human flesh, that he was some type of spirit or some type of manifestation or something other than what the Bible claims him to be, and that's this. In the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to say, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And it's critical as far as our belief, our Christian belief, to understand that Jesus Christ became man, that he took on human flesh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, that he took on human flesh for the purpose of giving himself up for our sins. The Bible says without the shedding of blood that there can be no forgiveness of sin. Therefore, Jesus had to come in human flesh. It is a fundamental truth of the Christian faith. But the doctrines that were introduced denied that. They also denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey, Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Why would he raise from the dead? And if he did raise from the dead, he certainly didn't raise in a bodily form because who would want to be entrapped in a physical body when you could be spirit and be present anywhere that you want at any time? And the Bible says that he was resurrected physically and that one day we too will have a physical body just as he had and has today. And we need to look at these things because these are truths according to the Bible. But the heresy that comes in says, hey, you know what? Don't believe any of that. Believe what we're about to tell you. So as we look at these things, we notice that many will be deceived by it, which is the deception of religious apostasy, that many would be, de be deceived, and if, if possible, even God's elect would be deceived, that the lies would be so believable that even God's people, if it were possible, speaking specifically of the time during the tribulation, that the lies and the miraculous signs and lying wonders that the Antichrist and his false, as false religious leader will do through the power of Satan will be so believable and they'll be so real that even God's people, if it were possible, would be misled by what was taking place. So we saw that in great detail, every one of these. And you ask the question, well, how in the world can we be so misled or deceived by what's going on? And God identifies those primary methods of deception. The first thing that we looked at were exactly what we just talked about, miraculous signs. It's important that we recognize uh, that we should not be deceived by miraculous signs. Those things, even as real as they are, we should not look at the signs or the miracles, but we need to become people who are more discerning and we look at the message or listen to the message that's being promoted alongside the signs. So many of us in our culture today are just in the physical things or we see things and we get so hung up by all of that that we're not discerning enough to say, but what's the message? What's the message that's being taught? What's the message that's being promoted? And does that message line up with what God says is truth in his word? 
We need to be people that are, are like the Bereans, who are the church in Berea, who were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they examined what Paul said daily and they examined it according to the Scripture to see if what he was teaching and promoting was true according to the Word of God. They didn't buy into it because he was some apostle, some heavyweight, some religious leader, somebody with impeccable credentials. They didn't buy into any of that. As he spoke, they had their Scripture open and they were checking the Scripture to see if what he was saying was true. And as, as what he was saying was true and lined up with the word of God, the, the, the Bible tells us that, you know what, and God blessed his word and many were being added to their numbers daily because they were discerning that they were not hung up in the external, but they listened to the message. We need to be people who begin to be more discerning and listen to the message and not get caught up in all the hoopla that surrounds it. You cannot get caught up in the size of a church. You cannot get caught up in all the activity that's going on. You can't get caught up in the budget and all the money that's being raised. You can't not get caught up in any of those things. We must be people who listen to the message because it's only the message that makes any difference whatsoever. As we look at this, we notice that some of the ways that we get deceived are through persuasive speech. Those charismatic leaders who can talk you into anything and you go, wow, you know what? I don't know what he said, but I like the way that he said it. And it goes back to that message of being able to discern what was the message. He was dynamic. He was passionate. He was, he was you know, excited. He was pounding the pulpit. He was all those things. But the question is, what did he say? That's all that matters. And I hate to say this, but on the other hand, we need to identify it as being true. Some of the most godly, gifted Bible teachers who, who teach the Word of God, espouse it, and, and, and they look at it, and they define the terms, and they go through the context, some are, some of the, sometimes they're some of the driest people you ever listen to. You know, and it's like, you know, but if you can get beyond that and listen to what's taught, the Word of God goes out and never goes out and comes back empty, the Bible says. We have got to be people who understand that all of us have different styles and different techniques and different personalities and different temperaments. And while some may be more attractive to you than others, never forget that it's the message and the Word of God that we're here to learn and to study. How do they get such a following? The Bible says because they attract to their sensual appeal. They tell people what they want to hear. They tell them what they want to hear. There's no standard of morality, the Bible says. Whatever you want to do is okay. That's what you want to hear? You want to leave your husband? Hey, I don't blame you. You want to leave your wife? Hey, I don't blame you. You want to have sex with somebody outside of marriage? Hey, as long as you love that person. As long as you do it safely. As long as whatever it is, the current trend of the day. Hey, you know what? You want to do that? Hey, God made you that way. He wouldn't have made you that way if he expected you not to act upon those emotions that, that you have. It's, you know, it's God's fault. He made you that way. So therefore, what you want to do can't be wrong. I, you know, hey, tell them what they want to hear. As long as they keep coming back and as long as they keep giving money to the budget. Tell them what they want to hear. We don't want to offend anybody. See, that's what the sensual teacher will do. The false teacher, the one who comes and says, hey, you know what? what? What is truth? There's no moral absolutes anymore. Truth is whatever you want it to be in your own little world that you live in. And who am I to violate that? And who am I to make you feel guilty about that? I certainly don't want to offend you. So you just go ahead and do what you want to do. Oh, you know what? Everyone loves to hear that message because we all want to be validated. We all want to be affirmed that what we want to do is okay and it's not our fault. We don't want to take responsibility or be accountable for anything today. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But what's fascinating about it is it's like we're in, living in an age today where, hey, let's take the best of the Bible. The best of the Bible. You're not going to see it now. Movie, come on. The best of the Bible, part one. 
you know, until people go in the reviews are there. What didn't you like about that? Well, that part made me offensive. made me feel offended. That part made me feel guilty. Oh, well, we'll eliminate that. We'll throw that out. The best of the Bible. And we'll throw out the rest that makes us feel guilty. The problem is by the time we're done, we're going to throw out the whole thing because what's the best to you is going to be offensive to you. And if it's offensive to you and we're all going to ask everyone's opinion, by the time we're all done with it, you know why? Because the Word of God is convicting. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Word of God penetrates our hearts and knows, and God knows exactly where we are as we sit here today and listen. He knows exactly what we're guilty of before God. And he wants, to get a, he wants to get that across to you so you can get right with God and that you can go in a direction that's pleasing to Him. So if we start to go with the best of the Bible, we won't have it too much longer because there's always something that's convicting to somebody. What's interesting about that is I ran across an article that was given to me. It was from the Wall Street Journal. And I think it demonstrates man is determined not to submit to God and his authority, but to somehow or another uh, reinvent or recreate God and his program and his plan. Listen to just brief excerpts from this. I think you'll appreciate it in light of what we're discussing. It says, faith now springs from a hodgepodge of beliefs. I'm an Episcopalian, and I think of myself as a practicing non-Jew, says Catherine Powell Cohen, 36-year-old English teacher in San Francisco. Well, I'm a Mennonite-Unitarian Universalist who practices Zen meditation, says Ralph Imhoff, a retired educator from Chandler, Arizona. I call myself a Christian Buddhist. Well, but sort of, tongue-in-cheek. If America has always been a melting pot, these days its religious practices have become a spiritual hash. Blending or braiding the beliefs of different spiritual traditions have become so rampant in America that the Dalai Lama has called this country the spiritual supermarket. The new religions are an offshoot of the globalization of practically everything, as formerly exotic cultures and religions are suddenly accessible in every way. Americans' dissatisfaction with traditional religion began in the 1960s, when early photos of Earth were transmitted from space. At that moment, the idea that one god might be better than another lost its primacy, and people began to think that, hey, all religions are vital organs in the planet. It says, for the traditional denominations, this cross-pollination presents an excruciating dilemma. Listen carefully to this. It says, if denomination headquarters bends the rules to accommodate these hybrids, the risk, they risk watering down their identities. But if they stick to the straight and narrow, they may define themselves out of existence, and extinction is a growing possibility. Membership in mainline Protestant denominations peaked around 1965. Over the same period, the number of conservative Jewish synagogues in the United States has shrunk to about 700 from 850. It says, meanwhile, membership is growing in organized religions that take a broader view of God. For example, where pastors use Eastern and Western scriptures in their Sunday sermons and will marry people of all religious backgrounds. These, these, these groups have increased their numbers by 25% over the past 15 years. It's interesting. It says, even the clergy of mainstream religions are starting to broaden their view of God. At St. Gregory of Nyssen, an Episcopal church in San Francisco, two senior ministers have created a service that includes the worship of Jesus Christ, dancing, and the ringing of Buddhist symbols. The ministers, Fabian and Shell, have impeccable Episcopalian credentials with graduate degrees from Cambridge University and Princeton Theological Seminary, respectively, but their service would be unrecognizable to most Episcopalians as would their church's decor. Well, just that, if that doesn't reinforce the importance of man, man's educational programs, I don't know what does. 
built to the minister's specifications four years ago, St. Gregory's has interiors, has an interior decorated with Ethiopian crosses, a Shinto shrine, and a Chinese gong. The ministers wear tie-dyed West African vestments, and unlike traditional services, this one almost always includes a shama, which is an ancient Jewish prayer, as well as quiet moments, uh, moments of reflection with the ringing of cymbals. People dance forward to partake of communion, and everyone is invited to take a per, uh, communion, not just Christians. Duh. What is the purpose of communion? Do this in memory of me, Jesus said. In memory of what? In memory of the fact that he gave his life as a ransom for many. We are to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins. But the wonderful thing is, they're going to invite everyone to partake of that, even those who deny that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. There are many references in the divinity of... Here, here we go, and we'll close on that. There are many references to the divinity of Jesus in the liturgy of St. Gregory's, but the priests and congregation agree that many divinities are being invoked there, and that in the end they are all one and the same. It is one God talking to everyone. Oh... Wonder if this caught God off guard. Second Timothy four, three through four, we read this. Paul warns Timothy that in the latter days, as the days of the apostasy or the falling away accelerate, the days that we find ourselves obviously in today, because we're a lot closer than he was then, and uh, we're moving in that direction more and more so every day. In Second Timothy four, verses three and four, we read these words. That sound doctrine would not be endured, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn their eyes away from the truth to lies. Sound doctrine will not be endured, and the people will accumulate for themselves teachers who tell them what they want to hear. Interesting, isn't it? False teachers primary goal, the, the goal of false teachers primarily is to please man, to somehow or other please themselves, to gain from it personally, many times economically. I was reminded of a story that I heard recently that I think kind of fits in here. Um, it was about a, fa a farmer whose name was Muldoon, and he lived alone in the countryside with a pet dog which he loved and he doted on. After many long years of companionship, the dog finally died, so Muldoon went to the parish priest with this request. He said, Father, my dear old dog is dead. Could you be saying a mass for the creature? Father Patrick replied, I'm so sorry to hear about your dog's death, but unfortunately we cannot have services for an animal in a church. However, there's a new denomination down the road, and it's no telling what they believe, but maybe they'll do something for the animal. Muldoon, as he walked out the door, said, Thank you, Father. He says, I'll go right now, but do you think $1,000 is enough to donate for such a service? Father Patrick said, Well, hold on a moment. He said, why didn't you tell me your dog was Catholic? <laughs> Boy, we're just so firm on some things, aren't we? Until a better offer comes along. Listen to me on a serious note. The road to apostasy begins when sound doctrine is set aside. When we begin to develop a mentality that says, well, you know what? I don't like what the Bible says. 
too uh, convicting. It makes me feel guilty. I think I need to go somewhere where people will make me feel good about myself. I think I'll go to a church that tells me what I want to hear and doesn't lay a guilt trip on me. The thing is, when we start to think like that, I will guarantee you, you'll be able to find people who tell you what you want to hear. And that is a very dangerous position to be in. I was thinking about that this past week, and I was wondering, you know, how can I illustrate that in a way that would make sense and that we would understand a little better how serious of a warning this is? And it was almost like if you were going to the doctor and you had a pain and you went to the doctor and you've had this recurring pain but you haven't really wanted to deal with it because you don't like to go to doctors and you can't stand the whole idea. But it's, it's recurring enough that you think, you know what, I, I'd be foolish not to deal with this. So you go to a doctor and you tell him what the pain is and he runs some tests and he comes back and he says, hey, you know what, I got, I got bad news for you. And you say, but I don't, I don't want to hear that. I just want to hear that, you know, it's, it's okay and it's going to go away and it's normal, it's natural and don't worry about it. I don't like what you just told me. I'm going to get a second opinion. And the doctor says, that's fine, I'd recommend it. So you go get a second opinion and the second opinion is exactly the same as the first. The doctor tells you the same thing the first doctor tells you. You say, but you know what, I don't like what you just said. I think I'm going to go get a third opinion. Finally, you go get a third opinion, you get a fourth opinion, you get a fifth opinion, and every one of them are exactly the same. You have exactly the same problem everyone has been warning you about, and if you don't do something about it, it's going to be deadly. So then you go to a friend, and you say, hey, I got this pain, and you know, blah, 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 and your friend says, ah, you know what, we're all getting older, we all have aches and pains, don't worry about it. And you go, oh, good, now I don't have to worry about it anymore. Because I just went to someone who just told me what I wanted to hear. And from a spiritual perspective, what God's trying to get across to us is this. When we come to God, and we've got aches and pains, as we all do, and we're crying out, and we're searching for an answer, and we're looking for direction, and we want some help, and God says, hey, I'm glad you came to me, and I'm going to tell you exactly the way it is. This is what your problem is, and this is what the solution is. We have a, we have a choice at that point to listen to what God says, and then act upon it, or just to be as stubborn and boneheaded as if we were going to a medical doctor and say, I don't like, God, what you just said to me, therefore I'm going to go get another opinion. And in, quote, religion today, there are plenty of opinions, and you can find a place that will validate or affirm what it is that you want to do. But my question for you is this. Do you want to hear the truth so that you can act upon it and resolve the issue in your life, or are you just looking for an excuse to continue to do what you want to do, regardless of how much pain it's causing you and those around you? See, when we come to God, who is the great physician, we want to hear that we're okay. But there are going to be times in our life where we are not okay. And God needs to tell us flat out, straight up, you are not okay, what you are doing is wrong, and this is what you need to do to get right with me. And you have an option. You can get down on your knees at that point and say, God, I am so sorry. And I want to do what's right before you. And I believe you. And I believe what you say that what's going on in my life is what's causing all this pain. Or you can say, God, I don't want to hear it and I'll go somewhere else and end the story. But you know what? That is not God's problem. That is our problem. Because God will tell us what we need to hear even when we don't want to hear it. And he'll tell us how to get right even when we don't want to take that action. And you know what he also promises? If you trust me, your pain is going to go away. But we have a choice. And we need to recognize that. 
we need to realize that God wants our pain to go away. But he will not do it on our terms and in our way. We must do it on his terms and in the way he prescribes. The last two areas of methods of deception that we're going to take a look at, I want you to kind of just drop these passages down and uh, dig into them on your own. Because religious appearance and religious deception have always been a problem, or religious traditions. They've been a problem since the early church. They were a problem when the Jews who became believers in Christ carried it over into their relationship with Jesus Christ and in their newfound Christian faith. They put more emphasis on religious tradition and religious appearance than they did on being right with God. And in religious appearance, look at 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15 when you get a chance. And as far as religious tradition is concerned, look at Colossians 2, starting with verse 16 through the third chapter, verse 4. Take a look at that when you have some time on your own. Because religion has always been a favorite tool of the devil. It is used by him to deceive folks into believing that's what makes one right with God. Go to church, give money, do what you're told to do, give God an hour a week, do your duty... And uh, trust us, religious leaders tell us, and everything will be okay. And you know what? And God says, no, that's not true. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. It's based on man's efforts. It's based on man's works. But according to the Bible, all the righteousness of man is as filthy rags to God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were religious people who were alive at the time when Christ walked the face of the earth. And they were into religious appearance. They stood on the corners and they prayed in public. They had their, their little prayer cards that were taped to their heads and to their breastplates. And, uh, and they were very outwardly religious. They gave all the signs that they were right with God. But Jesus told them and he rebuked them. And he rebuked them harsher than any human being that he had, any group of human beings that he ever rebuked when he said this. You are whitewashed on the outside, but you are filthy, dirty within. You come across to the world like you're so close to God, but I don't even know you. You're playing a game. And there are those who come to church today, 2,000 years later, who just play a game with God. You want to hear that that's all this game involves. Come to church, three out of four weeks, and you're all right with God. Be nice, you're all right with God. You want to play religion. You want to try to be, somehow or another, that should make you pleasing to God. Jesus rebuked him and said, you know what, the heart, God knows the heart of man. And you're evil and you're wicked and you're deceitful and you're hypocritical. And you come on the outside and you play Christian. And then you leave and you go and you live like hell the rest of the week. He goes, you know what, don't be deceived by your religion. Because the only thing that makes us right with God is our relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Religion is man's attempt to reach God, and God says, don't even bother, because you can't reach me. But what I'll do for you is that I will send my son from heaven, and I will send him to earth, because I love you so much, and I want you to be right with me. I want you to spend eternity with me. I want you to be reconciled to me, and I'm going to send him to you, that if you will believe and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you will become a child of God to those who believe in his name. I'll take care of everything. It's by grace you're going to be saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift that God offers to anyone. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. See, God says religion is worthless. But man's relationship with God is based on his relationship and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. You've got to ask yourself a question, and that's this. Do I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, 
or do I think my religion is what's going to make me right with God? I'm just here to tell you flat out, straight up, and, and in no uncertain terms, your re religion and your works and your trusting in yourself is, is just absolute futility on your part, and that you will never be made right with God through and of yourself. But it is a gift that God has offered for those who would receive Jesus Christ and Him alone, and there is no other way to the Father but through Him. Now that may be offensive to some of you, but it is truth, and the truth will set you free from the pain of not having a relationship with the God who created you by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How do we protect ourselves from people who promote such nonsense? The Bible says it's very clear that when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that the sheep will know the voice of the shepherd. Jesus said, I will not lose one of them. Because, you know why? Because my sheep know my voice, and they will follow me. Now, some of us will be deceived because we, we're not discerning enough to check into the Word of God. But ultimately, what God says is this, that if you know God through Jesus Christ, you will know and follow His voice. And even if you get misled for a little while, when you hear the voice of the Savior, the shepherd, calling you back in, you will come back to the truth, and the truth will set you free from all the garbage that's going on in the world that we live. But we need to know his voice. Now, the question that we have is this. Are these guys who teach such nonsense going to get away with it? And we need to look at the final destiny of religious apostasy. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, we read this. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. There is a day where all of this nonsense will end. Now what's fascinating too is you say, but why, why does God allow this to happen? Well, in the book of 1 John, we're told that God allows false teachers to go out into the world so that he can purify his church. He allows false teachers to go out and promote false messages so that those who are not genuine among us will leave and go follow them. And what we've got left are those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So God has a purpose and plan even in, in using those who would promote the purposes to flush us out so we all know who the true believers are. I like the story that I heard of a missionary who told in the days early in the history of the nation of uh, the Soviet Union where he told of underground churches that would meet on a regular basis because they could not worship God publicly. And so they would have to worship in private. And he told a story when he, when, of, of a time when he was there, and there's a group of believers that were there. They're all studying their Bible. They're praying. They're having a, a service. And uh, in comes the KGB, knocks in the doors. They all walk in. They all have machine guns. And basically, they just lay out this ultimatum. Anyone here who wants to deny Jesus Christ can get up right now and leave, and we'll let you go. We looked around, and all of a sudden, boom, boom, one, two, three, four. Man, all these people got up, and they start running out the back door. At the end of all of it, they shut the door. The guys who were KGB put their guns down and said, okay, now we know, now we know who has truly put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now we know in this room who we can trust, who are willing to die for what they believe. Interesting. You know, we need that type of flushing out in our culture today too. Because it's so easy to say, I'm a Christian. Hey, 90% of people in America are Christians. Oh, that is unbelievable. You know, think about it. Everyone's a Christian. Why? Because they all have a different definition. Well, I don't like God's definition of Christian. Well, when did you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Well, you know, I'm not one of those type of Christians. You must be referring to those born-agains, those Jesus freaks. I'm not one of those kind. Oh, really? What kind are you? Oh, they must be one of these kind. What, what is this one here? This is a, a Zen Buddhist uh, 
uh, Christian, Buddhist, tongue-in-cheek. Uh, I, I'm a Mennonite hyphen Unitarian Universalist who practices Zen meditation. I, I, did I cover all the bases? Am I, am I okay with you people? You know, it's like, well, what kind are you? You know, we need to recognize and understand that there's only one type, one definition of a Christian. And that is a person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. According to John chapter 3, a person who has been born again of the Spirit of God. Because if you're not, God says you're not a child of God. There's no other way to the Father but through Him. There's no other definition that's acceptable to God. And you know what? And these false teachers aren't going to get away with it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, we read, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. As I was reading through this, I was thinking, in what way? Now stop and think about this. They will secretly deny and introduce destructive heresies, which we've talked about many, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. And I'm thinking, now, how did Jesus Christ buy them? Does that mean that Jesus died for their sins and that, therefore, no matter what they do, they're not accountable to God because, after all, Jesus died for the sins of the world and we're all part of the world, and so Jesus died for us. Even if we don't believe in him, we're still covered. No, that's not what it means. Because the, 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 the description that we see here instantly contradicts that type of viewpoint on life. What it means is that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world and that his death is sufficient for every human being that ever walked the face of the earth. That Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient for all of us. But it is only efficient for those who believe in him and trust in him. It is sufficient for the sins of the world. It is efficient only for you and I as we submit ourselves to him and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus Christ died for these false teachers and they condemn themselves by rejecting the gift that God had offered them. And the Bible says, and they will bring swift destruction upon themselves. Payday one day. Peter saw no hope for these apostates. Their doom was sealed. It was interesting, his attitude is so different from that of the uh, tolerant religious people today. Well, you know what, they may not agree with us, but after all, hey, all roads lead to heaven. And we've got this attitude where we tolerate all of this nonsense and we don't call it what it is. And that's nonsense. And it's, and it's heresy. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. And it's wrong before God. And it denies the very truth of the word of God. We don't have anybody standing up to say, hey, no, what you believe is wrong. And it's wrong and here's why it's wrong. We've got an attitude of, hey, don't worry about it. God forgive everybody and everybody's in. Hey, you can go live any way you want to live. But you know what? Is that true? This denies it right here that those who were teaching what was a lie and were going the way that was wrong before God, it says, in fact, it says that they have forsaken the right way, which means simply they're going the wrong way. Duh. And they will be destroyed by God. Need to listen careful. Even good and godly Christians may disagree on some fine points of doctrine. And I want to lay that foundation out in certain areas because when we get into... What is the tribulation? Will the church go through the tribulation? There are going to be some very fine uh, points of doctrine that many of us may agree to disagree. And if God you know, would have just made it very clear and, you know, and had one chapter that says, the church will not go through the tribulation, amen, um, then there would be no debate that has taken place for the last 2,000 years as far as the church is concerned. I believe that there's a preponderance of evidence that would indicate uh, certain things, and we'll have to come back and see, and see what those are. 
But, uh, but the bottom line is this, is that there are going to be those who disagree on some of those points. But what we need to understand is this, but every one of those camps all agree on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, and He is God the Son. He is the only Savior for this world. To deny this is to condemn your own soul. They denied that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world, and as a result, they will find themselves being destroyed by God in a place that was created for the devil and his demons, a place called hell. We need to understand that. Now, I want to move into the area that I want to spend most of our time. That's kind of leading us to this. I mentioned that God not only reveals to us what we can expect in the future, but of equal importance is we are told how to prepare uh, for the days and the events that lay ahead. And that leads us to the fifth and final thing we're to notice, and we'll put all this together with this, and that's this. We need to notice the duty of believers in the face of religious apostasy. The duty of believers in the face of religious apostasy. We have a responsibility, and the Bible is very clear in this area. God's people have a responsibility, a duty in the face of such departure or falling away from sound doctrine. We need to know what that is because this is what God wants us to take with us today and to put into application immediately. What is my responsibility? We live in a world that is, that is quickly departing from the sound uh, truths or fundamental truths of the Christian faith. God, what do you want me to do in the midst of such a culture? And he says, oh, I'm glad that you asked because I've got some very specific things that I want you to do. Number one, I want you to notice this. There's what God calls a separation. God says that he wants us to separate from those who teach false doctrine. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Book of Romans, chapter 16. Notice the words. Romans 16, starting with verse 17. This is very clear what our responsibility is. Paul writes, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you have learned. We're saying, hey, you know what? Be alert, pay attention, don't fall asleep, don't be apathetic. But I want you to listen up and listen to the words and the message that's being promoted, and I don't want you to fall asleep and start to buy into this. If you start to hear something that's contrary to the word of God, this is what you need to do. You need to turn away from them. You need to turn away from them, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. He said, the moment that you start to hear false doctrine, then you need to turn away from that teaching and turn back toward the Word of God. You need to turn away. You need to separate yourselves. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, we read this. Avoid such men as these. 2 John 7 through 11 says, do not receive them. And in those days, hospitality was critical. When a teacher would come into town, there was no Holiday Inn, there wasn't a Hilton, there wasn't a place to put them up. So believers would invite these teachers into their home and share hospitality. The Bible says that we're to love the stranger, that we should be hospitable to strangers. That the church in those days was to open their home to those who are going to present the word of God and be hospitable to them. But what God says is this, if a false teacher comes in town, you shut that door and you don't let them in your house. Because you don't want to give the appearance to people around you that what they're going to say is... Is truth from the Word of God. 
You don't want any association with them. Depart from them. Turn from them. Flee from them. Run from them. Separate yourself from them so that people don't get confused and think that what they believe is what you believe by your association with them. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6. The whole idea of separation is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. And it's something that we need to get across once again in our culture. We're so concerned about being accepted by people around us that we forget the fact that God has called us out of this world and He wants us to be separate from it. We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to, to have contact with the world, but we're not to be contaminated by it. We're not to be so concerned about blending in with everybody around us because we're ambassadors for Christ and our citizenship is in heaven. We're not of this world. And we got a whole bunch of Christian people in our culture today that are so concerned about blending in with everyone else, they lay aside all the things that should differentiate us from the culture that we live in, and therefore we make no difference whatsoever. And I'm going to challenge you, young people to old people, wherever you find yourself in, the, in, 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 the, in that age range, stop trying to be like everyone else in the world and be what God wants us to be. We've got too many people that are concerned about being liked by the world. Don't worry about it. They hated Jesus Christ, and, they're gonna, and they put him to death, and they're going to hate us too if we stand for what's right. Just accept it as part of what comes with the territory. 2 Corinthians 6, look at verse 14. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Satan, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people, therefore come out from their midst and be separate. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This whole idea of separation is critical to understand. It is nature that determines association. It is nature that determines association. Because a pig is a pig, it will hang out with pigs and slop in the mud. You follow that? That's why pigs do what they do with who they do it with. They're pigs. If you're a sheep, you will munch on grass with other sheep. If you are a cow, you will do the same thing. And you will hang out with other cows. Deuteronomy 22.10 says this, Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. The ox was a clean animal to the Jews. The ass was not. It was inconceivable to put an ox and an ass together and expect them to cooperate and work together. Deuteronomy 22.10 is very clear that God says we are to separate ourselves with those who are not like-minded. Look at what he says. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. I mean, he circled these things. Look at, look at all the things. Communion and fellowship and harmony and partnership and agreement. And you look at all that God's desire for his people are seen in these words. He wants us to have fellowship with one another. He wants us to be with those who have something in common that's greater than just what we look like or how much money we make. It's our fellowship that we have in Christ because we have a new nature. That we've been born again and we're a child of God and we're different than what we used to be. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, everything becomes new. We are no longer who we used to be, nor should we be doing the things that we used to do with the people we used to do it with. There is something different about us. 
He has called us from darkness into light. We're to come out of that environment and we're to make a difference in a new environment. And not only that, but those who are part of our old environment are going to see the difference. And if we're living a life that's pleasing to God, they're going to want to know what's different about us than used to be. Why don't you do the things you used to do? You're no fun to be with anymore. Because I hated doing those things. My life was miserable and I just did it because we were all doing it. We were all dumb together. When I'd leave you and I'd go home at night and I'd lay in bed, I'd sit there and go, my life stinks. And they go, yeah, that's what I do. Really? Well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ and how he's freed me from all the bondage and the baggage that went with all that. And how I've got joy and peace and contentment. And, 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 I'm just, and I love life now. And he's given me abundant life. And I, I, mean, I, I mean, let me tell you about him. And the only reason I'd ask is because now you're different. But if you're still doing the same things, they wouldn't know anything changed in your life. If you're still doing junk that you used to do before you came to know Christ, you know more than anybody how miserable you are because the Spirit of God's convicting you. What are you doing this nonsense for? What are you slopping with pigs for? You're not a pig anymore. Spit that corn cob out of your mouth. Get out of there. Take a shower and move on. What's wrong with you? That's what he's saying. What in the world do you have in common? What 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 does Jesus have in common with the devil? Nothing. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. What agreement is there with the temple of God with idols? Guess what? The Spirit of God lives within those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. What do you have in common with a non-believer? The Bible says nothing. The command is found all through Scripture. To separate ourselves is not just a negative act. It's also a positive act of dedication to God. We are to separate ourselves from the world, and we are to separate ourselves unto God. It's just not a negative thing. It's no longer do I want to live this way, Lord. I want to live in a way that's pleasing to you. I'm not only going to stop doing these things that I used to do, but I'm going to start doing these things that you want me to do. It's just not a negative thing. Oh, you can't do the things you used to do. Hey, I don't want to do the things I used to do. I want to do the things that I'm doing now. I want to do what God wants me to do. I don't want to do any of that. I didn't even want to do it when I was doing it, but I didn't know any better, and I did it because everybody else was doing it. And sometimes it was fun, but most of the times it was misery. We need to recognize and understand we're to be separate. We're to separate ourselves. God blesses those who separate themselves from sin and unto the Lord. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. How about you? Have you separated yourself from your past and your dealings and the things you used to do and now you've committed yourself unto the Lord? Or are you still hanging on to some things that God says, you know what, would you please let those go? It's about time you trust me 100%, isn't it? So in a way that may be offensive to some of you, I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 22:10 that says, Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. At the risk of offending some of you, but to put it bluntly in a way that you're not likely to forget, if you, are an, if you are an ox, stop being an ass. Okay. Because that's exactly what we are when we're doing what is wrong before God. God has a better program. You've already found it out when you gave your life to Christ. It's a better program all around. Trust Him in every area. Let go of the garbage and move forward to what God has ahead. Don't be unequally yoked. Number two, ooh, confrontation. Oh, I hate confrontation. We live in a world that tries to tell us that all confrontation is evil and should be avoided at all costs, particularly the cost of truth. As a result, error is encouraged and flourishes. Listen to me. There are times in life when we will be wrong. 
Now some of you are sitting there going, not me. You're wrong right now. There are times in life where we are going to be wrong and need to know it so that we can make adjustments and correct our path. I remember the first, one of the first Bible studies that we went to. I mentioned this to somebody. I want to re- reinforce it because it has to do with this whole idea of confrontation. But just became a Christian. Didn't know diddly about anything. All I knew is that, you know what, I was a sinner, that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I acknowledged that, asked Christ to come into my life. It was 20 years ago. First thing I do after that is we get plugged into a Bible study. We're all sitting around a Bible study. Oh, Bible study. Never been to a Bible study. Didn't know anything about a Bible study. But, you know, it kind of went with much fear and trepidation. Oh, boy, I, I, I know of people that go to Bible studies, and now I, I'm afraid I'll become one of them. And uh, some of you are here today with the same fear, but that's okay. But uh, so we go to this Bible study, and we're sitting around, and uh, you know the teacher that's there, he starts reading the passage, and then he starts to go around the room, and ask everybody, well, what do you think of that? Well, what do you think that means? And everyone goes around the room, and they're all saying what they think it means. And 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 it's like this person said one thing, this person said the opposite, this person said another thing, this person said the opposite of that. Everybody's answer was good. Hey, that's good. That's very good. Now the guy comes to me and he, said, he asked me. I said, that last answer was wrong. <laughs> silence. There's silence in the room. It was, like, it was like, oh, you know like when you do something, you go, uh-oh. <laughs> Everybody stops. Everybody stops everything. It just stops. Every eye in a place. Looking at me. So what was wrong? The teacher uh, uh, look, we're, we're all entitled to our opinions and, and we'll just kind of keep it that way. We may all be entitled to our opinions, but that doesn't make them all right. That was wrong. And I'll tell you why it was wrong. I didn't know much about the Bible, but I had been reading it for a little while and it was one of the easier things that came up and I was like, and I'll show you why. Look, this is what the Bible says right here. Everybody stopped and went, That teacher was an idiot. <laughs> he was. He was an idiot. Why? And it's like, oh, well, that's not very loving. It's true. <laughs> I'll say it lovingly. Uh, he was misguided. What will make you feel better? He was a moron. <laughs> he was an idiot. And here's why. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is very important. Second Timothy four, starting with verse one. It says, I solemnly charge you, I command you in the presence of God, Paul speaking to Timothy, a pastor, a teacher of the Word of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Notice in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, we're told that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The purpose of teaching the Word of God is to teach truth so that truth will convict us when we're wrong before God. If you're wrong, you're wrong. And that's okay. I've been wrong, and it's, it's okay. I want to know where I'm wrong. I want to know when I'm wrong, and I want to know by the Word of God that I'm wrong, not by your opinion or what you think. I want to know what God thinks and what God has to say, and if what I think is wrong and doesn't line up, then I need to throw that out and adopt what God says to be truth. See, we're told that the, the Scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuke. 
You know what that means? That when somebody says something that's wrong, and you know, we got a lot of Bible studies and stuff, and it's amazing this, this philosophy now where people can just say what they want and they expect everybody to say, that was a good answer. There are times where it's not a good answer. There are times where it's wrong, and we cannot allow a person to leave the presence of this group believing that what was said was right because it promotes error all at the expense of what? Well, we don't want to confront each other with the truth. We have to confront each other with the truth. Otherwise, we promote those things that are wrong before God. And, and God says, rebuke those who are wrong. Correct them. It's just not a matter of saying that was wrong, but it's a matter of saying not only is it wrong, but let me tell you why it was wrong, and, and let me show you how we can get right with God. That is what correction is all about. Now, what's fascinating about all this is this, that we're to do it, look, with much patience and instruction. Believe it or not, I've come a long way from that first Bible study. Because you don't want to chase people away by having them feel they're stupid, but you want to encourage them to be open to expose what they're lacking, but you do it on a different basis. You don't promote error by saying everything's okay. What you want to do is encourage people that, hey, if you have any questions, you're struggling with anything, or you're not sure of certain things, let's talk about it, and we'll dig into the Word of God together, and we'll see what God has to say. It's not a matter of just shutting somebody up. And, I, and I, man, I mean, between the, our Rams Bible studies, this group here, Angel Bible studies, all that, we've got a very eclectic group of people that come from all over the place, all different kind of backgrounds, all racial uh, uh, takes, all religious backgrounds. I mean, it, it's an eclectic group of people. Now, the last thing you want to do is start slamming people without them feeling a certain comfort that, you know what, hey, this guy loves the Word of God, he knows the Word of God, and, and, and uh, he wants to instruct us in the Word of God, and if I'm wrong, I'm willing to learn. You have to try to cultivate that type of mentality so that truth can be promoted. You can't slam people and say, man, that is stupid. But let me show you why what you just said is wrong. But I'm not going to say, gee, what you just said is right if the Word of God clearly teaches that you're not. That's not helping anybody. We need to understand that confrontation... I mean, think about this. Think about when Peter said to Jesus, hey, you know what? We're not going to let you go up to Jerusalem and be crucified. Jesus turned around and said, get behind me, Satan. That wasn't politically correct. It was just truth. He said, because you don't have your mind set on the things of God, you got your mind set on the things of man. Get behind me. He rebuked him, but he corrected him also with great patience and much instruction. And that's what we need to do. The point is we need to understand God's word will tell us when we're wrong, and society tries to say that we're all right as long as sincere. And to that I say this, that is nonsense. It is nonsense. We are not all right, no matter how sincere we are. Only God and his word is right, and it is truth. And if we're wrong, then he'll tell us, and he'll correct us, so that we can get right with God. Just like that doctor's diagnosis. You may believe anything you want, but you know what? The truth is the truth, and you may believe that you're okay, when in fact, you know what? You've got a tumor, and you've got to take care of it, and you better deal with it, or else you're going to die. Refute those who contradict sound doctrine. Titus 1.9. There is no room for error, not even a little bit. It's interesting. Somebody gave me a, a, a kind of a quote, or not a quote, but a, a fact sheet. One-tenth of one percent error. Meaning that it could be 99.9% .9 correct, but this is the ramifications of that one-tenth of one percent of error. Two million documents will be lost by the IRS this year. Can only hope that they're ours. <laughs> 
22,000 checks would be deducted from wrong bank accounts hourly or 176,000 checks per eight-hour shift if 99.9% was right. Twelve babies will be given to the wrong parents daily or 4,380 babies per year. 14,208 defective personal computers will be shipped this year (laughs) because they're not all Y2K compliant. We'll talk about that later. 107 107 incorrect medical procedures will be performed daily or 39,055 per year if only 1% were done wrong. 1,314 phone calls would be misplaced by telephone communication services every minute. You know what's fascinating? That would be totally unacceptable, wouldn't it? Absolutely unacceptable. And you know what? We need to develop the same mindset when it comes to the Word of God. Anything less than 100% truth is absolutely unacceptable. Because once you give room for the 1% error, then you open yourself to all the rest that comes with the package. Number three, spiritual growth. The duty of believers in the face of religious apostasy is spiritual growth. 2 Peter 3, verses 17, through 8, 17 and 18, we read this. When we're talking about spiritual growth. You know, what's interesting is that the Word of God, 1 Peter 2, 3, says this. Long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. 2 Peter chapter 3. You therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, speaking of false teachers, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in your knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, that so in it you may grow in respect to salvation. I talk to people today that are so concerned about their physical appearance, and I say that's great and that's wonderful. But I don't think I think if you take a good hard look at it and you start looking around, you'll notice that it is a losing battle. I mean, you do the best you can, but we're going down. We're going down. We're going down quick, quicker than some of us would like to admit. But the bottom line is this: we spend a whole bunch of time, all you know, very regularly trying to get ourselves cleaned up. You know, you run, you go to the gym, you work out, uh, you, you, you get your hair dyed, you get your nails done, uh, you try to do all the things you do. Now we're fighting the fight where we're getting this tucked and this lifted. And, you know, we're, we're, we're trying and we're fighting and we're trying to stay in great physical condition. And I say there's a, per, there, there, there's, a, there's a place for that. We need to have balance in our life. We need to take care of the bodies that God's given us. We need to get in good physical condition because when you're in good physical shape, mentally, spiritually, socially, everything else starts falling into place. But, my, but the reason I bring it up is this. How many of us spend 10% of that time longing for the pure milk of the Word of God so that in it we may grow in respect to our salvation? If you feel guilty, good. Because you probably should. If you would take 10%, I'm going to challenge you. You take 10% of the time that you take getting yourself fixed up physically and you commit 10% of that time to getting into the Word of God and getting to know what God has to say about life, about relationships, about right, about wrong, about morality, about Him, who He is, His attributes, what His plans are. You take 10% of that time and you dig into the Word of God. And you know what? Your life will never be the same. Because what you'll start to find is, you know, I think I can spend more and more time getting into the Word of God because I'm growing in respect to my salvation. We need to be challenged to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ.
God's Word is accessible to all of us. And we need to all take advantage of it. It is a wonderful gift that's been entrusted to us to reveal God and His plan and His purposes that are all not only just for us, but also for the kingdom of God. And that last thing is this. It requires faithfulness. Faithfulness. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, one of my favorite passages, talks about putting our eyes on Jesus Christ. Not looking around, not seeing what everybody else in the world's doing, talking about running the race, keeping our eyes on Jesus.